In this episode, we unearth the first flat earther, Rob gets into a sticky wicket, and we get a bell! Welcome to Fax Machine. My name is Noah, and I'm here alongside my co-host, Emily. Hi. And Rob. Hello. Our theme in this episode is sports ball. But don't worry, we don't really know that much about sports, so this episode was never really going to be about the amazing players or fascinating statistics that might captivate other podcasts. No, no. Somehow our facts this week are two-thirds 19th century authors and one-third mysterious organ pain. So, without further ado, hold your participation trophies aloft and let's play ball. Our batting order is as follows. Emily is at the plate with our first fact. Rob is on deck with our second. And I'm, quote, in the hole. Yes, that's what it's called. With our third fact, as well as with a pub-style trivia quiz, loosely inspired by the theme. Emily, on your mark, get set, go. Thanks, Noah. So this week I learned that the New York Knicks of the NBA, so sports, <laughs> gets their name from Diedrich Knickerbocker, one of Washington Irving's pseudonyms and a character at the center of a 19th century viral marketing campaign. Mm. So from what I've gleaned from some sporadic Googling and a recent-ish episode of the podcast Reply All, to be a Knicks fan is an exercise in suffering. Despite being the most valuable team in the NBA for the past four years and occupying the top 10 list in general for a while, they haven't won a championship since 1973. And a quick search of the phrase, why are the Knicks so bad, brought me to a few accounts of bad trades and signings, and also an outdated strategy called the triangle offense that was implemented by coach Phil Jackson and underserved the team. I don't know what any of this means, offense. but <laughs> offense, see? Off, like, not like offense, <laughs> like, like a deliberate strategy used to score points in a sports game. <laughs> and at our latest soiree, she made quite a triangle offense of me. The three great offenses. Three-point shooting, two-point shooting, slam dunks. She will never come to our parties again. Just not even in the same universe as my comfort zone. But I stumbled upon some nicer bits of trivia about them as well, including that in 1947, they signed the first non-white player to the NBA, Wataru Misaka. And in 1950, they also signed one of the first African-American players to the NBA, Nat Sweetwater Clifton. Um, also, the Knicks, along with the Celtics, have the distinction of never having moved from their home city. So nice hometown pride there. Mm. And also, uh, their locker room at Madison Square Garden is round. And this is apparently oh. very intentionally done to encourage unity and camaraderie among the teammates. Um, just because like when everyone sits around on the bench, they can all see each other and converse really easily. That's the Knicks, briefly. Now, on to literature. What a relief. Oh, God, thank you. Okay, so our story begins with Washington Irving, arguably the first true American author through earning both a literary reputation tantamount to his contemporaries abroad and a living wage solely from his writing. In achieving this distinction, he paved the way for successive giants of American literature, like Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville, Longfellow, Poe, while also lending legitimacy to writing as a profession and elevating American literature on the world stage, as he embraced uniquely American settings, stories, and folk vernacular in his works. And of course, he's remembered today as the author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and less remembered as the inventor of the moniker Gotham for New York City. Mm, um, right. And of course, that's associated with Batman. But I have to be honest, so the word apparently comes 
comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for Goatstown, and it sounds a lot less badass <laughs> when you know that. Like, he's the hero Goatstown deserves, but not the one it needs right now. It just doesn't have the same ring, I don't think. So, long before I he was... I bet there are lots of bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Billy Eilish. <laughs> he makes the bad guys bleat. <laughs> so... Long before he was known for any of this, he was a 20-something writing letters to the newspaper about New York's literary and theater scene under the pseudonym Jonathan Oldstyle, which, to be honest, sounds more like a font than a pen name, but, you know, he was still figuring things out. <laughs> it's it's fine. And, incidentally, Gotham is the font of our podcast logo. Ooh. So many, so many Easter eggs just scattered all over the place. That's one of 200. Good luck, guys. <laughs> um, he was also writing zines with his brothers and just barely passing the bar exam. But in 1809, when he was 26, he and his brother Peter compiled their satirical commentary of New York City society and politics, along with some faux scholarly accounts of local history, into a humorous guide called A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty by Diedrich Knickerbocker. (laughs) So upon completing the book, which he would later describe as a crude mass of mock erudition, he set about orchestrating what in modern day terms could be considered a viral marketing campaign. Whereas nowadays, such a stunt would take place over Twitter or YouTube or some other digital media, the 19th century gossip machine was fueled by a very different source the classified section of the newspaper. Mm. Knowing this, Irving got two of his friends to purchase a public notice in the New York Evening Post that read, DISTRESSING! In all caps. So off to a strong start. I'm distressed. (laughs) Very effective. Left his lodgings sometime since, and has not since been heard of, a small elderly gentleman dressed in an old black coat and cocked hat by the name of Knickerbocker. As there are some reasons for believing he is not entirely in his right mind, and as great anxiety is entertained about him, any information concerning him left either at the Columbian Hotel, Mulberry Street, or at the office of his paper will be thankfully received. So Irving let this ad for the missing foppish Knickerbocker circulate for two weeks, and even in that short time, it elicited quite the public response. Newspapers around the city quickly picked up the story of Knickerbocker, who came to be known as a distinguished Dutch historian who arrived in New York with scant baggage and unknown motives only to vanish without a trace. The Evening Post received dozens of letters from readers claiming to have seen him, and New York City officials even offered rewards for his safe return or tips of his whereabouts. Ever the storyteller, Irving further stoked the fire by penning public notices from the perspectives of other fictional people who had seen or associated with Knickerbocker, including a traveler who'd seen him alight a stagecoach in Albany while appearing very much fatigued and exhausted, and a man named Seth Handicide, the proprietor of the Columbian Hotel where Knickerbocker was staying when he disappeared. And I should note, too, that as far as I can tell, there's never been a Columbian Hotel in New York, so it turns <laughs> out you don't need the internet to spread misinformation. Fun fact. <laughs> but this seems like some Orson Welles level, like, mass public deceit, which it I really was. enjoy. It's yeah. like, I don't think we interrupt Orson, your regular program to bring you yeah. an update. Mr. Knickerbocker has been spotted on the streets <laughs> with a crooked hat walking down ways. Don't approach him as he may be unstable. We now return you to your normally scheduled program. Finally. Finally a use <laughs> for Rob's old-timey radio We've been announcer waiting for accent. It's relevant. Every single time we ask Rob to do an accent, he comes up with, Hey, everybody, I am on 1930s radio guy. His default is old-timey. <laughs> In the words of the Dalai Lama, Ah, make me one with the world, see? <laughs> Oh, the humanity. <laughs> oh, God. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. So things started to get interesting in a letter Handicide wrote to the editor for the Evening Post, which featured an ultimatum. In quotes from the letter, A very curious kind of written book has been found in his room, Knickerbocker's room, in his own handwriting. 
Now, I wish you to notice him, if he is alive, that if he does not return and pay off his bill for boarding and lodging, I shall have to dispose of this book to satisfy me for the same. So a week later, with the public hopelessly enthralled, not only now by the whereabouts and whoabouts of Diedrich Knickerbocker, but additionally by a scribbled manuscript left at the scene of his maybe crime, Irving delivered the final act of his masterful hoax, a literary notice announcing the release of A History of New York to settle the fictional debts of a fictional Dutch historian whose mysterious disappearance from a fictional hotel spurred a month-long saga that dominated the news, turned the rumor mill, and so deeply captured the imaginations of 19th century New Yorkers that it lent a colloquialism to their Gotham-dwelling ancestors. Now, if only the Knicks were that good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first, let me say that just very pleasingly, there's a basketball player in the NBA named Kyrie Irving, and he might play for the Knicks next year. So that's cool. That's beautiful. I like Secondly, that. Secondly, the Knickerbockers, like society, team, whatever. Um, and they were actually the earliest known published rules of baseball, uh, sort of in the mm. su- sort of modern game. Um, and they were written in 1845, um, and they were written by the two-man, commi- quote, committee on bylaws. And everybody knows now in baseball, like, rules are a really big thing. And if you look up, like, <laughs> the baseball rules book, I don't know. Sure. There, but there's, like, very, very, like, intense super granular rules for every little tiny, tiny thing. Um, So this is maybe the beginning of that, but the Committee on Bylaws with Vice President of the group William R. Wheaton and Secretary William H. Tucker. Um, And a couple notable rules is that, uh, one, the 13th rule outlawed, quote, soaking or plugging, which was putting a runner out by hitting him with a thrown ball, introducing instead the concept of the tag. So previously, Mm. you could just, like, whip a ball at somebody um and if you hit them they were out um but basically they were trying to make this like an adult game and it was fine if you were a kid throwing a ball at someone because you couldn't really do that much damage but when you had like adults and even later you know not amateurs but like professional athletes playing it you could really really hurt someone if, if you're a kickball player even in adult leagues pegging as we now call it is still <laughs> legal sometimes oh yeah yeah because we're well, not that strong we're weak adult Working people, not athletes. (laughs) Well, let me tell you uh, what William Wheaton said uh, about this rule. So what was then known as three-cornered cat or town ball uh, was a boys game and did well enough for slight youngsters. But it was a dangerous game for powerful men because the ball was thrown to put out a man between bases and it had to hit the runner to put him out. The ball was made of a hard rubber center, tightly wrapped with yarn, and in the hands of a strong-armed man, it was a terrible missile and sometimes had (laughs) fatal results when it came in contact with a delicate part of the player's anatomy (laughs) um some other euphemism yeah um actually if i could note really quickly too the new york knickerbockers the baseball team was also the first baseball team to have a formal uniform oh and incidentally baseball uniforms were for a time one of the few kind of consistent outfits to feature knickerbocker pants Hmm. so those sort of like pantaloon looking pants that are kind of loose but then bunch up just below the knee like breeches like breeches exactly (laughs) though to be honest with culottes which i do love i'll admit like they could come back i could see happening sound great for playing basketball in definitely yeah (laughs) but as long as you had the kind that just tears off right before the game starts (laughs) tear away knickerbockers (laughs) (laughs) um but some other uh interesting rules that were introduced by the knickerbocker club uh was the rule it was the 15th of their rules that specified there were three outs per inning 
Uh, another, the tenth rule. <laughs> I like how you're telling us the number, like they're the commandments. Yeah. <laughs> like, and the tenth rule is. <laughs> well, they are. <laughs> Rules are very important in baseball. I'd argue have been have been more effectively uh, enforced than the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Maybe recently. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice, uh, nice headphones and microphone you got there. I'm coveting them. <laughs> Okay, um, <laughs> so uh, so the tenth rule prescribed foul lines uh, and defined what a foul ball was, um, and this was important because uh, basically at the time there were sort of regional different versions of this game that was like known as town ball, etc. Uh, and the these rules distinguished the New York game from the Massachusetts game in which. All batted balls were in play, no matter where they went. And another fun thing about it was in the Massachusetts game, which like scholars of baseball have apparently like reconstructed the rules and played and say there is a much more fun game than the modern game, which is derived from the New York rules, because you didn't have the runners didn't have to follow the base paths. So you could run anywhere you wanted to try to like outrun people. So people would run out in the outfield and like through cornfields and try to get back to second and just try to shake off someone who was following them. Uh, so it was really, really awesome. And the ball was in play no matter where it was. Yeah, like it could go no behind. Yeah, it was a lot more like cricket, basically. Oh, yeah. wow. Also, also I'm sure that in that version that was popular in Boston, they would still be allowed to throw the ball at people because it is known as Bean Town. Oh, true. <laughs> nice. Can I bring up a really... I don't think that's why. I'm just saying. <laughs> Can I bring up a really weird point, which is interesting <laughs> that you've, Noah, already mentioned the end of this story, and I'll tell you why. But Washington Irving started a naughty little rumor. Ooh. <gasps> he was yeah. known for that, apparently. <laughs> So one, he invented like basically the modern American Christmas story, um, Santa Claus flying over houses, like dropping presents down from the roof. Like he kind of just came up with that and popularized it. Yeah. Actually in the book that I just mentioned. Yeah. And yeah. so <laughs> that's one thing, but I don't, I'm not counting that. That's a perfectly nice little rumor. The dirty little rumor he started was that until the time of Christopher Columbus, everyone thought the world was flat. Wow. And that really? wasn't true at all. And he just kind of wrote it into a story of American history, and it's like taught in classrooms today. I know what the end of the story is now. <laughs> yes. Can I say it? Go for it. Because Kyrie Irving famously thinks the yes. world is flat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Can like, I say we've gone full When you circle? mentioned him, I was like, oh, you're like, you're you're jumping ahead now. <laughs> oh, damn. Sorry, I just got Emily's joke. Oh, I love my the delay between when I say jokes and when you guys laugh. <laughs> Well, that uh, what you just said it's about so there being consistent. a delay. That's what great. you just said about there being a delay is not going to make sense when I edit it to make us sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. A little. That's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so you can you can literally blame Washington Irving for repopularizing the flat Earth theory. One one of the things oh, I love man. about um, the sort of like the fact that people didn't think the Earth was flat is that just I learned this in like grade school was that the Greeks knew. Some you know isn't mm-hmm. that incredible? Like the ancient Greeks knew the world was a globe, or at least was curved, just because they would look out and they would see the tops of the ships come across the horizon before the rest of the ship, and so they knew that meant that they had to be sort of like coming over a curve. Right. And the, the changing in lengths of shadows, as mm-hmm. detailed by a lot, like there was a lot of evidence. Like there still is. It's not like the evidence is gone. It's so still, say, yeah, that's <laughs> still not enough for an appreciable amount of people, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> So I thought it's interesting that the name of the Knicks came from Knickerbocker, the fictional person. So I figured I'd look into a couple other NBA team name etymologies, um, because as you mentioned, most NBA teams have actually moved around a lot. So there's all kinds of geographical nonsense in the names. Like um, the Flat Earth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they, they used to be the Harlem Flat Globe Trotters. <laughs> Blame Trotters. <laughs> oh 
So I looked up a few. Uh, kind of the most famous example is like, why are the Lakers called the Lakers? Because they're from Minnesota. Because they're originally from Minnesota. Oh, And okay. like, I'm just going to give you a few team name histories. Some that happened, some that were just proposed and never actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so one was um, in 1994, the Nets, the New Jersey Nets, which who were so named, one, because they play basketball, and two, because they rhyme with Mets and Jets, and someone oh. thought that was cute. Well, that is a little cute. Yeah, yeah okay. Nice. Gotta give them some credit. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, but they were, they were a bad team. They didn't have a big fan following. Um, and so there was a proposal to name them the New Jersey Swamp Dragons. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so good. <laughs> it was seriously considered, but never taken. Um, there's an interesting one. In 1990, uh, the Washington Wizards, you know their previous name? Senators or something like that. They're actually the Washington Bullets. Bullets. That's right. And... Um, this is the United States, and so gun violence has always been a problem. And they're getting a lot of heat. Uh, well, they're getting the Miami heat. Yeah. <laughs> they're getting a lot of flack. Oh God damn it! Things were getting. <laughs> <laughs> but because of the criticism for the name Bullets, uh, the owner Abe Poland was thinking about renaming the team, and actually he attributes um, the impetus for renaming the team to the uh, the assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Wow! And he said, oh. "Yeah, he was a friend, and I wanted to rename the team, so he named it the Washington Wizards." which immediately drew the ire of the local NAACP because of the KKK Wizards. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so, like, Washington just can't win. Last one was uh, the Orlando Magic. Uh, they had a bunch of names that they were considering, one of which was, was a tribute they were considering to be the the Orlando Challengers. Oh. Um, yeah. Which oh. would Before or after? Yeah. After. Oh. Yeah. Um, like, in tribute to. Uh, but they wound right. up not doing that. But the other entries that they were considering were the Floridians, the Orbits, the Astronauts, the Aquamen, the Sentinels, and the one that I wish they had chosen, the Orlando Juice. (laughs) (laughs) All right, before or after? (laughs) (laughs) This week I learned that Dodger Stadium was built on a piece of reclaimed land in the Chavez Ravine taken from the local citizens, and that one man's umbilical cord is buried under the stadium, giving him kidney pain. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Is yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, is this a non-fact on facts or she? This is a factually adjacent fact. Okay. <laughs> so he claims that it gives him kidney pain. Yes. Well, so, But he is attributing his kidney pain to his buried umbilical cord. Presumably, which was in his childhood home. Yeah, so I'll give you. I'll give you the full context. You can decide for yourself, the okay. co-hosts and the listeners. You choose the truth. <laughs> Pick your own adventure. If this oh, is no. going to be a choose-your-own-adventure, I choose the one that doesn't involve his umbilical cord. <laughs> yeah. So this is the story of Lou Santillan, who was a, a inhabitant of the Chavez Ravine. Um, he was born in February 1935. In keeping with Mexican tradition, uh, his parents buried his umbilical cord in their backyard. So 15 years later, in about 1950. Uh, roughly a thousand residents of the Chavez Ravine uh, had their land bought out by the city of Los Angeles to make room for a new low-income housing project. So the city, um, the city paid them poorly, but said, "You guys are going to get first dibs on the new housing, and you get to move in, and it's going to be, you know, nice, and it'll be like we'll have facilities because there was not as much running water, there was no electricity, so they thought this would be a big improvement." However, the property was used instead to lure Walter O'Malley, the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, to come out and take a look to create an urban oasis called Dodgers Stadium. No. So, according to Santalan, quote, now my umbilical cord is buried under third base. Every time somebody hits a triple, I feel a pain right here. And at this point, he presumably points towards his kidney. Which side? I'm not sure. That's Which a great one? question. Yeah. 
Yeah. And also, does <laughs> it only when somebody hits a triple? Like, is he implying that if someone steps on third? Because that can happen other times. So, so I came across this as an ancillary fact. Um, there was an episode of 99% Invisible that talked about the Chavez Ravine, the building of Dodger Stadium, mm. kind of the design of it all. And they made a passing comment about this guy. And I said, all right, I'm going to look into that. In certain interviews, he says triples, home runs as well hurt. Um, doesn't really mention singles or doubles. Um, well, a, 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 I mean, the, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying like a single or double wouldn't make the third base, but a base runner off of a single or double has some relatively low probability of making it to third, right? Yeah, and so, so you I'm could wondering... be advanced to third on a single. That's true. Which, oh, that's true. which should hmm. cause at least slight discomfort. Yeah. Yeah, does the intensity of the pain kind of vary with like the point value being accrued yeah. running over the base? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it matters which Curious team is at bat. Like, yeah. I, I don't know what so happens. Like when they come out during like the third inning and they sweep the dirt. Like, he's <laughs> <laughs> just got a little itch. It's, just itch. it's like, <laughs> like one of the umpires, you know, with like the plate, like little brush. They, they come and dust it off, and he's laughing. like, And so, so I think it's. So basically, he uses it as a story. It's the story he tells, you know, like part of me is under the stadium and he has never set foot inside Dodger Stadium. He refuses to. Um, so he's actually the founder of a group. He doesn't need to. He's <laughs> set umbilical cord <laughs> he's, there. He's camped in there permanently. <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's a founding member of a group called, um, of the Chavez Ravine residents called Los Desterados, which means the uprooted in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a group of people that gather every year, have a picnic remembering what their community was like before they were displaced. Um so in, in protest, he'll never go back. His family received $7,500 in 1950 for their house, which is not a lot. Um, so what's impressive about this story isn't that it's true. I mean, it's very likely that, yes, his umbilical cord in some form is in the dirt that was turned over to make Dodger Stadium. But what's, what's totally nuts is how relatively famous this guy has gotten for, for this fact. <laughs> So I heard about it on like a, a national radio show. And in reading about it, he's been published or he's been talked about in the Los Angeles Times, Sports Illustrated, ESPN.com. Like everyone has interviewed this guy. And when you read about it, you find out the other names like Ros Wyman, who brought the team to Los Angeles. She's a city council member. She ran her ticket was let's bring us a baseball team to Los Angeles. Um, but you read about Walter O'Malley, the owner from Brooklyn, who flew in a helicopter over the Chavez Ravine and was like, yeah, that looks good. And then picked it as the spot for his team. You read about Frank McCourt, the kind of beleaguered former owner of the Dodgers. And then you read about Lou Santillan, who's a guy who moved out 65 years ago and really hasn't. I mean, he's just a Los Angeles native now, but he's in all these magazines because he says, oh, yeah, I got this pain. <laughs> and everyone's like, that's a cool story. <laughs> like, and he doesn't have a press agent. He just like tells anyone who tell like who wants to listen. And it's amazing. Um, but one place I found him, um, there's a book called Shameful Victory. The Los Angeles Dodgers, The Red Scare, and The Hidden History of Chavez Ravine. It's a book by John Laslett. Um, and in it, they mention uh, Santillan a few times and his two sons, um, basically talking about how um, everyone in that town was displaced. Uh, but I found actually a cool quote in this book, um, which actually talks about New Yorkers who were affected by the Dodgers' move out to Los Angeles. Occasionally, first-generation family members on the East Coast contact West Coast family members displaced from the Chavez Ravine to show solidarity with their former compadres, the Dodgers. Uh, One Brooklynite said, when you go to a Dodger game, remember, people got uprooted here in Brooklyn, too. They had their souls ripped out, which is sort of like having a body part taken and then buried in the California soil. 
So what's really weird is this happened in the 1950s. And, and what, the reason this kind of stuck out to me is one of the people who I know had their, like, their sports-loving soul ripped out was my father, who was born in 1946 in, in Brooklyn and Queens, New York. He was born in Queens, I guess. But like, lived, he, was a, he was a Dodgers fan. And when the Dodgers left, he stopped caring about sports, like completely. <laughs> he was like, well, if they're gone, I'm done. <laughs> and it was it. That was, like he still only cares about the Dodgers, but in a way, he has no idea who's on the team, like or even necessarily what city they're in. But like, he, yeah. But he still cheers for the Dodgers. He he asks about the Dodgers, and he's excited if the Dodgers. If he like watches the evening news and the Dodgers beat somebody, he's like, good. okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Wow. And so Dedication. he he used to go to games as a kid in, in Ebbets yeah. Field. Yeah. And so he was one of the people that misses the Dodgers a lot. I'll just say one last thing about uh, the Sports Illustrated article in which I read about Santillan. It was actually about uh, kind of the decline of the Dodgers and how ever since day one, they've been kind of a contentious team. Uh, but they actually had the worst. Um, their fan on fan violence rates were really bad. And this Sports Illustrated article kind of randomly addresses the history of it, saying, quote, fan on fan violence dates back to at least... 532 AD, when 30,000 people died in three days of riots at a chariot race in Constantinople, (laughs) which just seems like an arbitrary and like not super useful fact in this article. Um, Are you kidding? I want to know more about that chariot race. (laughs) Tell me what happened. But so to me, that sounded like 532 AD is like still late. Like I imagine there was like fan on fan violence well before that. Maybe it wasn't documented. But then the other thing I realized was you might not have needed fan-on-fan violence because in the ancient Greek Olympics, um, the state laws were basically suspended for athletes. So if you killed another competitor in your sport, you couldn't be held liable. <laughs> I would not be in the stadium during javelin. <laughs> yeah. So in fairness, they had like gladiator stuff. Like I feel like they were not too concerned about people dying during sporting events there's quite was a lot of regular part of the violence. enjoyment yeah exactly there was greco-roman normalized. wrestling which back then was just greco wrestling i guess like <laughs> there were romans <laughs> in ad <laughs> oh no i mean sorry in no, the, before in the lawless oh, olympics yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes oh. Yeah, yeah, I see, yeah. I see. so seeing your fact about a mysterious kidney pain um actually reminded me of one of the least traumatizing of the cool concepts that i learned about when i was taking emt classes back in the day um and that's the concept of referred pain so that's pain that you feel somewhere in your body that is indicative of a painful stimulus or malady in a completely different part of your body mm. and this sounds crazy and to be honest it kind of is um while there are various theories to explain the underlying mechanism we still don't actually understand how or why it happens uh there are a few well-known examples of it um and also plenty of less well-known and really unintuitive and weird ones. So of the well-known ones, uh, myocardial ischemia, which is just reduced blood flow to the heart that can result from a heart attack, um, can present as an aching pain in your left extremities, like your shoulder, arm, and even your hand. Like everyone's heard the classic sign of a heart attack of like left arm radiating pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Another one is uh, sphenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. Anybody know what that is? Let's see. Sphenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. So there's some nerve cells, ganglioneuralgia. Yes. Mm, nope. Brain freeze. Oh. So that's another example. So the, that's caused by the rapid cooling and rewarming of capillaries in your sinuses, which then stimulates the vagus nerve in your throat or the trigeminal nerve in your palate to transmit pain signals that are then felt quite acutely in your head rather than at their source. Um, but some lesser known and very weird ones. So in case you needed a new source of paranoia, essentially, um, 
The right tip of your scapula uh, is a common site of referred pain from your liver, gallbladder, or duodenum. So your wow. scapula is your shoulder. Uh, left shoulder tip pain, uh, which is known as Kerr's sign, could indicate that you have lesions on your diaphragm, a ruptured spleen, or, for the ladies, a ruptured ectopic pregnancy great. And lastly, pain in your palmaris longus muscle, which you can actually see maybe when you touch your thumb and ring finger together. So 14% of the population actually doesn't have this tendon. Do we all have it? No, I don't. <gasps> you don't? I'm a weirdo. That's, what? You're is that the one? Is that the one from like swinging through the trees when we were monkeys? Yes, exactly. The one like in the midline of your interior. So the inside of your wrist. Um, but that pain like there is often felt in the palm of the matching hand, oh. but yeah, but it's, yeah, it's vestigial. It, uh, it became vestigial when we evolved to have thumbs, go thumbs. It's cool. Cause it's actually, it's still retained, um, as just vestigial in our closer primate relatives like chimps and gorillas, but still needed by our more removed relatives like orangutans. So I have one last thing just about, uh, since this fact started with kind of a land grab or the taking of territory. Um, I was listening to another podcast called The Omnibus Project. It's actually hosted by Ken Jennings, the Jeopardy champ. Um, and it's a really interesting show. He does all about, believe it or not, random facts. Um, <laughs> no <and> so, kidding. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to preach too much about it so our listeners run off and listen to them. But Yeah, uh, we, we'd be in Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. But, I mean, if they listen to ours and theirs, it could be a daily double. <laughs> hey! <laughs> but uh, in a recent episode, they were talking about something called the Berkeley Pit. Which I'm not sure if you've ever heard of. It's two different colleges. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? It's not. Name not at all. dropper. <laughs> so the Berkeley Pit is actually like the premier Superfund site in the United States. Uh, what it was, it was a. It's oh, really, really fun. Is that what you said? No, super, super no. fun. Super fun. <laughs> yeah, oh. as in it's really like not, not fun. Nuclear <laughs> waste. It's not yeah. nuclear. It's heavy metal, and I'll, oh. I'll explain. So, okay. um, so there's there's a big mining industry in Butte, Montana. And they actually found this this load of copper underneath a hill, and they wanted to dig into it and actually make a, a big open-air mine. But they needed to displace lots of Irish and Chinese residents who were living in the town. And so they bought it and did so, and the resultant pit that they formed filled up with water, leached all the heavy metals that they had been mining, and it is now just an absolutely acrid, acidic, disgusting oh lake. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Um, they have active control to keep birds from landing in it because they will die instantly. Um, and you can actually go visit it and walk out on a clear platform and be over this lake pit and see like the acid, gross water. Why? Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. What, what is the draw for doing that? Well, there, there is no draw. It's lost um, on me. Okay. I mean, the, the money goes towards supporting the site. Uh, so it's a really kind of, it's, it's a land grab gone terribly wrong that they wanted to make this big lucrative business and they actually made one of the worst natural disasters in the United States. And the real fear is that will it will overflow in a rainy season yeah. and actually pollute like the Columbia or Colorado rivers. Oh. Um, oh, and so that's a downer. But <laughs> the, the big news is that in an adjacent town, there's another mining industry. And the town just a few miles west is called Anaconda. And so I got to hear Ken Jennings, Jeopardy! champion, say, I like big buttes and I cannot lie. <laughs> oh, My anaconda don't want none unless you got ore, son. Okay, he's definitely, <laughs> we're definitely at peril of losing listeners to him. <laughs> like- <laughs> This week I learned that Jane Austen mentioned baseball in a novel 40 years before it had been officially invented. Hmm. What? (laughs) So I'll get back to Jane Austen in a second, but first I want to tell you a little bit about how baseball was supposed to have been invented and why that story is total crap. (laughs) So Take us back. (laughs) As the story goes, in 1839... 
a man by the name of Abner Doubleday traced out the design of a modern baseball diamond in the dirt on a farm in Cooperstown, New York. This was incredibly convenient for the future Baseball Hall of Fame, which is also located in Cooperstown. So Doubleday, who was a West Point cadet from 1838 to 1842, became a Civil War hero and Union general, and as a soldier is notable for firing the Union's first cannon shot of the war in defense of Fort Sumter, where he had been second in command. Wow. However, Doubleday never claimed to have invented baseball, and it was only attributed to him after his death when a disagreement arose between prominent sports writer Henry Chadwick on one side, who pointed out the obvious similarities between baseball and the British sport rounders, and Chicago Cubs president Albert Spaulding and National League president Abraham Mills on the other, who took a hard stand that baseball was invented from nothing in the U.S. In a speech, in fact, Mills defended this stance as being based on, quote, patriotism and research. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and a crowd of around 300 people responded by chanting, No, rounders! No, rounders! <laughs> this really happened. Um, and Spalding called for a commission to determine once and for all the origin of baseball and directed it to decide whether the British game of rounders was baseball's predecessor. However... Of course, Spalding packed the commission with supporters of the American origin, and they scraped the bottom of the barrel hard, trying to come up with justifications for their theory. <laughs> Spalding put out a request for information on the early history of baseball in the Akron Beacon Journal newspaper, and a 71-year-old mining engineer from Colorado named Abner Graves. Yes, apparently everyone was I, named Abner. Yeah. <laughs> Abner Doubleday's <laughs> yeah, Abner Doubleday's uh, grandfather was also named Abner, is who he was named after, uh, and Abner. Doubleday Jr. also had a cousin who did live in Cooperstown named Abner Doubleday. Graves wrote in and claimed that in 1939, he had witnessed Abner Doubleday, who he describes as a 15-year-old student at Green's Select School, draw a diagram of a baseball field and explain the rules in Cooperstown. He describes the rules of the game that he claims was invented there as follows, quote, a tosser stood beside the home goal and tossed the ball straight upward about six feet for the batsman to strike using a four inch flat board bat and others who wanted to play being scattered all over the near and far field to catch the ball the lucky catcher then taking the bat while the losing batsman retired to the field you know baseball (laughs) so a few problems right off the bat thank you uh so to speak (laughs) doubleday didn't attend green select school he attended cooperstown classical and military academy until that is he began at west point in 1838 a year before graves claimed the invention of baseball took place furthermore not only do first year west point cadets not get a lot of time off so it's unlikely that he would have been hanging out in cooperstown playing games with children graves would have been about five years old to doubleday's 20 at the time But his biographer Thomas Barthel wrote that, quote, he did not leave West Point from August 1838 until graduation in 1842. Damn. There were also some concerns about Graves' credibility, as he had also claimed to have been a Pony Express writer in 1852, although the Pony Express did not begin until 1860. So he was just delivering fake news. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So the commission that was set up ignored all of this and made Graves their star witness, publishing their foregone conclusion that baseball was American and that Doubleday invented it in Cooperstown. (laughs) That was the official story for many, many years. And in 1939, the Baseball Hall of Fame was established in Cooperstown. Over time, historians began to chip away parts of the legend, highlighting the significant similarities between baseball and other bat and ball games derived from folk games in Britain and continental Europe. Even the Cooperstown website acknowledges that story of baseball's origin there is a myth, although the website of the Baseball Hall of Fame from time to time goes pretty far out of its way not to explicitly state it. 
But knowing as we do now that baseball's origins are across the pond, and that it wasn't invented by Abner Doubleday in 1839, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that Jane Austen mentioned it in her book Northanger Abbey, which was completed in 1803, and was actually her first novel to be completed for publication, but was only finally published after her death in 1817. Um, And Northanger Abbey is ostensibly a coming-of-age story centering around Catherine Moreland, a young girl, quote, in training for a heroine. Um, Austen writes... Catherine, who had by nature nothing heroic about her, should prefer cricket, baseball, riding on horseback, and running about the country. However, that's not even the earliest reference to a sport by the name of baseball, as a 1744 British publication from John Newbery called, quote, A Little Pretty Pocket Book. (laughs) (laughs) A Little Pretty Pocket Book. I just can't say it without that voice. That's how it should be said. Anyway, A Little Pretty Pocket Book also uses that term. Furthermore, a French manuscript from 1344 contains an illustration of monks playing a game with a lot of similarities to baseball and other old French games, such as Tech, La Balle au Baton, and La <laughs> And there's another sport called La Balle Empoissonnier, which also may be related. Sorry, I, I might strain something pronouncing those words. <laughs> like the stretch for dramatic effect. Was, was the, first, the first one was just Bat Ball? Uh, la balle, la balle au bâton. (laughs) (laughs) And then the final one, la balle en poissonnier. (laughs) No idea what that means. I could have looked that up, but I did not. Poisson fish? No, it's en poissonnier. Or it could be the ball in the fish. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) You've been to one of my parties, huh? According to Google Translate, the poisoned bullet. Oh, that's so badass. That's legit. (laughs) Why don't we call it that now? I watched if we did. Talk about <laughs> talk about band names. Right? The Poison Dude. Bullet. Yeah. Oh, po- so poison. So you're trying to hit it away from you so it doesn't poison you. That makes sense. Get out of here. Mm. Um <laughs> So <laughs> anyway, these sports may also be related. And evidence uncovered in early 2009 suggests that cricket may have in fact been imported to England from France. And I'm sure that as of this podcast, there will be a commission set up in no time to defend the English origin of cricket, and some will probably write in to claim that they witnessed Jane Austen drawing out the rules for the game. Please (laughs) feel free to write in and explain them to me. (laughs) But finally, uh, John Kiernan wrote a poem about this whole fiasco for the New York Times that summed up the whole story much more succinctly than I did, and it goes, O Abner of the Double Days in far-off fields Elysian, your claim to fame is called a foul by later day decision. Some prying, oh sorry, God, some prying archaeologists have gone and found some traces of baseball footprints ages old in sundry English places. Ooh. Well then. So your story of an author making an uncanny prediction about the future um, inspired me to look into similar stories. And I found one um, actually from Jules Verne, so science fiction writer. Um, so just to kind of like summarize the novel that I'm referencing here. So in 1856, Jules Verne wrote a novel or published a novel called From the Earth to the Moon about three men who fly from Florida to the moon using a device called the Columbiad and in the novel's sequel Around the Moon return to Earth by crashing into the Pacific Ocean. Does that sound familiar to you all? Wow. Wasn't that the plot of a movie? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> but before that, and 113 years after that book was published in 1969, three men board spacecraft. Yes, <laughs> there it is. I didn't even realize what I was saying. <laughs> we, nice. We both jumped <laughs> for the bell. <laughs> <laughs> Got a little violent. Um, but yes. <laughs> In 1969, there you go. Now you each got a turn. It's good. Three men boarded a spacecraft. That is what 69 is all about. (laughs) (laughs) So, three men boarded a spacecraft whose control module was named Columbia, actually after the Columbiad from the story, uh, to embark on a space flight from Merritt Island, Florida, to the moon and back, landing in the Pacific Ocean, no less, uh, on the Apollo 11 mission, the first manned space flight to the moon. So I'll admit that I describe the novel in a way that kind of disproportionately emphasizes its similarities to the Apollo 11 mission, and there are quite a few key ways in which it diverges. So, for example, the Columbiad isn't a spacecraft, but rather it was a giant cannon, or space gun, in the novel, (laughs) from which the spacecraft, space bullet, which I have to say, I feel like if we start using this terminology, NASA will get a lot more funding out of the current administration, so just just to know. Space bullet. Space bullets and space guns, hey. Um, But essentially, yeah, so the Columbiad was the space gun that fired the space bullet that went into space. Uh, Also, the passengers were two American gun enthusiasts, uh, a French poet, (laughs) and a dog. It's wild. It's (laughs) so real. He couldn't make that up. (laughs) And once in space, they viewed their celestial surroundings through opera glasses. But there are still a few odd little details that Verne got uncannily correct, in part because he did actually do some rough calculations to assess the feasibility of his fictional moonshot. So for one thing, the shape and size of the vehicle, or bullet, uh, closely resembled the dimensions of the Apollo Command and Service Module spacecraft, Columbia. Additionally, Verne wrote uh, about a competition for the launch site between Florida and Texas, which actually did happen and was resolved in Congress in the 60s with the Kennedy Space Center um, being given to Florida as a launch site and then Houston, Texas being the site of mission control. But uh, anyways, another cool facet of this is that the crew aboard Apollo 11 was actually aware of this novel. I mean, after all, their command module was named after the Columbiad. And it was even referenced in a TV address by the mission's commander, Neil Armstrong, who said... A hundred years ago, Jules Verne wrote a book about a voyage to the moon. His spaceship, Columbia, took off from Florida and landed in the Pacific Ocean after completing a trip to the moon. And it seems appropriate to us to share with you some of the reflections of the crew as the modern-day Columbia completes its rendezvous with the planet Earth and the same Pacific Ocean tomorrow. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. You know what else is amazing? I've been sitting on a fact for almost a year now about how there was a novel written 14 years before the Titanic sank called called Futility about a ship which was the largest ship that had ever been built called the Titan that was a oh, that geez. was <laughs> specifically this basically the same size with the actual Titanic measuring only 25 meters longer that could reach the same speed both ships were described as quote unsinkable both ships hit an iceberg and went under in mid-April. And despite having thousands of passengers on board, the fictional and the real-life ship carried the bare legal minimum number of lifeboats. Wow. wow. All right, guys, now it's time for our quiz. In this quiz, I will give you English idioms in relatively common usage that originate from a particular sport, okay? All you have to do is tell me what sport it comes from. So one of the things I noticed is that most sporting idioms either come from a small handful of sports or are too obscure for you to ever get, 
or possibly contain just unambiguous references to the sport that they're from. So it's a bit of a sticky wicket, but I hope that you'll think it's a slam dunk, or at least that it's on par with my other quizzes, and that none of the questions are low blows. And as always, you're taking on the quiz as a team, so you'll have someone in your corner who will go to bat for you if you find yourself on the ropes. Okay, let's get this ball rolling and come out swinging. Here's hoping you bat a thousand and it's smooth sailing from here on out. Ready? No, we we are gonna <laughs> we are gonna power play this thing right into the gulp. No, post. Rob, I used all the good idioms. <laughs> Hat trick. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> idiom number one. From what sport do we get the idiom "the ball is in your court"? Tennis. I would presume right because like okay, court court stuff? sports are like. Basketball and tennis. Tennis is older and more linguistic. And also, like, the implication of, like, your section of the court versus an opponent's is very clearly delineated in tennis. Are there other tennis-like sports we should consider? Like... Squash, badminton, pickleball? Pickleball. (laughs) It's not pickleball. Okay. Aw, man. I like tennis. All right. I'm going to... Yeah, let's do tennis. All right. The answer is... Tennis. Hey. Great. Um, there apparently is also, some people argue that it may be basketball. However, um, I think I think most of the sources that I looked at were pretty confident that it was tennis. Um, the reason it's a little confusing is that the term dates from the second half of the 1900s. So, you Ooh. know, 1950s and on. So it's like right when basketball's at its heyday, you know, uh, so it's kind of difficult. But it's definitely from tennis. It may also be from basketball. So, hmm. idiom yeah. number two. From what sport do we get the idiom throw one's hat into the ring hmm it would seem oh, like a like a boxing thing that's what i was thinking yeah but, but it might be a wrestling hmm. was that a thing where you would like go to fight and like throw their hats down and be like let's do this crack all their knuckles <laughs> i could see it I, mean, I, could, I could picture it right um <laughs> wait can you do your old-timey voice and be like ah. and there's a newcomer here who's throwing his hat into the ring <laughs> yeah i believe it yeah <laughs> feels <Okay>. right <laughs> okay uh, yeah. Boxing? I'd say boxing. All right. Okay. Yep. The answer is boxing. Nice. Um, so <laughs> The accent really helped. Yeah. <laughs> I would say so. So the, the term now is probably most commonly used um, when someone signifies their candidacy for political office. Uh, and it means basically to enter a contest. But in the early days of boxing, you signified that you were you know willing to challenge whoever uh, by throwing your hat literally into the boxing ring. And that's so you nailed it. You guessed exactly what it used to be. And that's that term dates at least from 1847. Bada bing. All right. All right. So idiom number three. From what sport do we get the idiom jump the gun? It would be track and field. Like like running races. Right, run before the starting gun. Yeah, false start. Yep, that makes sense. Absolutely right. So jump the gun derives from track and field where a pistol was used uh, to start the race. If you jumped the gun, that was like a a fault. What do you call it? Well, it... I think it depends because it, it, in some sports it was a full disqualification. Yeah, but so like, I think now I think the rule is something like it, the first time it happens, everybody just goes back. But mm-hmm. the next time it happens, you whoever it is, even if it's not the first person who did it, yeah, that person is disqualified. So it's a contentious rule because a lot of people will um, deliberately do that. Yeah, they'll, they'll trip it so that everyone is more cautious on the start, so that everyone starts slower. That's Whoa. crafty. Yeah. Some mind games right there. All right, idiom number four. From what sport do we get the idiom in one's wheelhouse? Interesting. Oh, okay. So that implies like the meaning of it is like a like a skill that you have like available to you from mm-hmm. like familiarity or practice. 
So wheels, I think of like race car driving that they pull over and have stops that yeah, replenish like, their like wheels. A form- Formula One, <laughs> like older car yeah. auto racing. And they, I mean, they pull over and like have tools and supplies that are like added onto the car. Oh, so wait. That could translate to skills. But depends maybe? how old it is. I wonder if it's like charioteering. Whoa. Yeah. That's that's a deep cut right there um, into history and stuff. Um, I feel like though most hmm. of most of our phrases are not that. I feel like like auto racing is safer. Yeah. All right. Let's roll with that. Race cars. Palindrome. No. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> the answer is not race cars or auto racing in any form. It's actually baseball. Really? Yes. Okay. So a so as you said, Emily, oh. uh, a person's area of expertise or where they're most comfortable. Uh, and baseball, this is the part of an individual's swinging Strikes range in which, as a hitter, they can make the best contact with the ball. Oh. If a pitch is right in your wheelhouse, it is right where you want it, in the spot where you have the best chance of hitting it well. So that's where mm. that comes from. Interesting. Very right. cool. Idiom number five. Okay, to be fair, this one is slightly out of left field. Uh, um, <laughs> so from what ancient Gaelic sport do we get the idiom hurler on the ditch? Um, caber toss. What? <laughs> sure. No, uh, hold on. Don't go with that because hurler on the ditch. This is 100% Ca- Caber toss is, <laughs> I might take is a Scottish tree <laughs> tossing. Well, let me point out to you that I said Gaelic and not Gaelic, which so is, Gaelic is that that's the Ireland Irish as opposed to Gaelic, which is sort of the Scottish. So it has to be a truly Irish sport, um, and it's the hurler on the ditch. Hurler on the ditch. Okay, so the ditch I'm imagining is the mound, and the hurler is the pitcher. So let me let me tell you, okay. it, a hurler on the ditch basically it. means the same thing as a backseat driver. Oh, okay, so it's rugby, but I'm I'm so just shooting from the hip here. But Again, one hundred percent. That's an idiom. Taking an app. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's, so I'm imagining now the ditch is like where the people are watching. The hurler is the guy in rugby who throws the rugby ball. And I met five members in the Irish national rugby team once in France and still don't know the answer to this. So <laughs> not a useful I feel like there's a much, they were very nice. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's a much longer story about that. <laughs> nope. We were in an elevator. They held it open for me and I was I'll like, say. oh, you play rugby. And they're like, yeah, we do. But Irishly. And I was like, all right, cool. Bye. And that was it. No <laughs> Missed connection. Yeah. <laughs> what could have been. <laughs> right. I'm just confidently saying things I have no idea about. So like whatever sounds good to you. Rugby. Rugby's Do you know any fun. like just purely Maybe. Irish sports? They're really big in Ireland. This is going to be embarrassing. It's like, it looks a little bit like a combination of field hockey and lacrosse. Like kind of. All right. I'll go ahead and tell you. So a hurler on the ditch uh, as I said, is sort of like a backseat driver. And it means uh, basically a non-participant who criticizes from the outside. So a hurler on the ditch uh, would be someone criticizing from the outside of the sport. Hurling. Have you guys never heard what? of hurling? Oh, you know, it's ringing a bell. No. Nope. But... Is it like curling, but with heat? <laughs> it's ringing a bell. No, the sport of hurling is really, really cool. So imagine like, it's basically like, you can kind of imagine they're sort of like field hockey sticks, but then the ball just can like they hit the ball through the air and it's played on a field and they call it the fastest sport on grass Hmm. um and so like you just it's very very cool so if you know listeners after you're done with this podcast look up like youtube videos of hurling it's a very cool sport and it's also a huge deal in ireland like it's not some obscure sport it like you know they'll sell out gigantic arenas and it's it's very very cool to watch um so sorry that one was a little bit uh below the belt um Uh, so yeah, I'm, so, I'm embarrassed for not knowing it. Okay, um, <laughs> idiom number six. From what sport do we get the idiom 
no holds barred. That's, I feel like, a wrestling term, because you would have holds, and then this would be your wrestling where right. all holds are legal, so some free-form free wrestling. Hold? I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, that's my... Wrestling balls to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, there are no walls in wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking of. But there of. are balls. <laughs> <laughs> but there are lots of balls. They're very prominent. Displayed. Um, um, yeah, that makes sense to me. Can we just say wrestling? Is that enough? You could say that. Yeah. Efficient? All right, let's do it. No, it's wrong, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I see you cheesing over there. <laughs> um, oh, jeez. Okay. Holds? Um, Can we get a, a hint? Is it like a contact sport? Is that where the hold comes in? I mean, okay. Yes. Sports where you call okay. a hold would be like, they call them in football, um, which means they, they probably okay. have some form of holding in rugby. Sure. Um, I am the most useless teammate for this. My apologies. Want to do rugby again? Rugby's fun. I feel like it should come up. It's at that right level of sport that, like, we would guess it, but we wouldn't know anything about it. So, like, I feel like there's going to be a rugby answer. All right. Rugby. Again. Final answer. The answer is wrestling. (laughs) Bit of an own goal there, guys. Um, anyway, okay. <laughs> the answer is wrestling. As you correctly figured out in the first half of your deliberation, uh, it's, you know, no holds barred. They're not barring any of the holds. So there's no restrictions. The rules of wrestling bar certain holds or grips on one's opponent. Um, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, the balls in wrestling are very easy to grab. Mm. And you're not supposed to do that, I guess. Um, so no holds barred would mean you can grab those balls. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so idiom number seven. From what sport do we get the idiom, the home stretch? Okay, so my instinct is baseball, but I feel like that's too easy. I sort of agree. Right? Um, Noah did have Thomas Jefferson as the answer three times <laughs> on his last quiz, so Fair. he's not above this. Know your host. I'm not Always above anything. Always know your host, yes. There's a seventh uh, inning stretch. Maybe the home team stretches more. We've got... Longer hamstrings by um, the end of it. When you're when you're racing, is the last lap like a home? It it is like in horse other? racing. That's the last lane, I think. Ooh, okay. I've been to the Belmont Stakes one time. Yeah, I like that actually. Yeah, let's go with that. Horse racing. Horse racing is absolutely right. Yes. Oh yeah. The final phase of an endeavor or project is what that idiom has come to mean. Uh, but on a race course, the home stretch is the final part of the track on which the race finishes. So great job. Unsurprisingly, I can only help when it comes to the most bougie sports. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Idiom number eight. From what sport do we get the idiom to bowl over? To bowl? Like over. someone is bowled over. I'm astonished or overwhelmed okay. mm-hmm. by This whatever. one might be rugby. Because I feel like bowling is too. The only other thing you bowl for would be like in cricket. when Or, you... or soup. <laughs> <laughs> Great band. Oh, wow. I believe like you, the... The pitcher in cricket is the bowler, I think. Oh, okay. But okay. I don't want to do that thing where I say something that throws the right person off the track. And then we have the, the right answer. And then I seated <laughs> my ground too quickly. Yes. R.E. the rugby, rugby wrestling hold situation a minute ago. Right. So I, I picture just the motion of like bowling someone over physically. Mm-hmm. Like just like running at them as a front and then like knocking Knock them, them off down like feet. 10 pins. Like which metaphorically like compatible with 
you know, yeah. knocking someone off their feet. But I can see, I can see that being someone's job in rugby is just to like hit the ground and trip two people. Yeah, so and pick the biggest just, guy and be like you, yeah. him, go. <laughs> Which would be an illegal slide tackle in any other sport, but like would totally but work. Rugby, you have to tape your ears down. There's no rules. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm pretty. I'm pretty okay with rugby. Let's do it. All rugby. Right. We're gonna do it again. It's cricket. God damn it. <laughs> You were absolutely Why right, Rob. Why is it never rugby? <laughs> you bowl in cricket. You try to hit the wickets. It doesn't make any sense. It's a crazy sport for a crazy country. Um, the, also, there were a lot of really interesting idioms uh, that come from cricket originally. Um, so the cricket term uh, to, you know, bowling over to you know, whatever it means to knock both of the bales off the wicket. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, also, the term hat trick uh, comes from cricket, and it means uh, a threefold feat in an endeavor, as we know from many other sports now. And in cricket, a bowler who took three wickets with three successive bowls was entitled to a new hat awarded by his club. A hat trick. A hat trick. Yeah. Well, then. Uh-huh. Also, and then he just uh, threw it down to wrestle. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so the uh, Oxford English Dictionary cites this to 1877. Um, and then. Later, obviously, it's been used in many other sports, such as soccer and hockey. Um, and then, of course, the excellent sticky wicket, which is a metaphor used to describe a difficult circumstance, originating as a term to describe difficult playing conditions caused by a damp and soft cricket pitch. This explains that text you sent me the other day, <laughs> which, which said, try this one on for size. A young cricketer with skin as green as the pitch takes on corruption <laughs> oh, in the no. cricket establishment and the other side to the official more well-known story. Wicked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was I was sending you a lot of different like sport pun based movie plots. Yes, there's several more. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Oh, no. <laughs> Number two, set in the same universe as Osmosis Jones, this animated sports comedy oh, no. tells the story of the plucky upstart Red Blood Cell baseball team and how they make it all the way to the finals to challenge their rivals, a team of athletic bullies called the Killer Tees. Yeah. Spoiler alert, they lose in the end because they didn't have anyone to build the team around, i.e. a nucleus. <laughs> I don't know if all our listeners know that red that... blood cells are notable among cells for not having a nucleus. I mean, worth pointing out now. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it all makes sense. And, and the name of that movie, Emily? Blood Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of that. <laughs> I'd do it again. Um, all right, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Finally, let me make a special request to y'all listening right now. If you like our podcast, please take a second and give us five stars on whatever app you're listening on. And if you want to make us so, so, so happy, please leave us a short review letting us know what you like about the pod. If we said something in this episode you found particularly interesting, we'd love to hear all about it. And you can get in touch with us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod, on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast, and on our website at FaxMachinePodcast.com. You can find me on social media at Arcs and Sciences. Emily? At underscore E.M. Costa. And Rob? At Whiteboard Rob. And our producer AC at The Cosmic ACA. Fax Machine is hosted and written by me, Noah Guyberson, Emily Costa, and Rob Frawley, and was edited by Noah Guyberson. Production and theme music by AC Antonelli. And our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.